Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 148th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Laura LaTourette. Laura is the founder of Family Wealth Management Group, a hybrid advisory firm in Dahlonega, Georgia, that oversees $45 million of assets under management for 86 client households. What's unique about Laura, though, is the way she's built her advisory firm to work primarily with the LGBTQ community in her rural Georgia town while navigating her own challenges of figuring out when and how to come out of the closet to her own broker-dealer. In this episode, we talk in depth about Laura's financial planning process, the series of four financial planning meetings she goes through with every client that includes a unique draft plan meeting where she presents a tentative series of recommendations to clients, not for their implementation, but simply for their feedback, how Laura sets her minimum financial planning fee that's separate from what she's subsequently paid to help clients implement, and how in recent years she's begun to refine everything from her website to her data gathering form to better speak to her core LGBTQ niche clientele. We also talk about Laura's own journey through the financial services industry and building her firm. The way she started out trying to build a multi-advisor agency with centralized support, but ultimately found it just wasn't profitable to do so. The path she took to shift away from the multi-advisor model after 10 years to operate a solo advisory firm that she's enjoyed far more, How a desire to build a succession plan is leading her once again to start building towards a multi-advisor ensemble practice, and why she recently decided to hire a new CEO to support her solo advisory firm who specifically does not have client relationship or business development obligations. And be certain to listen to the end, where Laura shares her perspective on why it's so important to be authentic to who you are when you're working with clients to build trust what she's done to find support for herself through the challenging ups and downs of being a lesbian advisor in both a town and an industry that are still not very accepting of the LGBTQ community, and why she joined the Women in Financial Services organization and is now launching her own Rainbow Network to support LGBTQ advisors. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Laura LaTourette. Welcome, Laura LaTourette, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me, Michael. I'm I'm looking forward to the podcast discussion today because you kind of, I don't know, connected me into a, a concept, an issue, a challenge in the advisor world that I'll, I'll admit I'd, I never really thought about. A few months ago, launched a, a network within LPL as a part of their diversity and inclusion initiative for LGBTQ advisors and had made this comment in, I think, in one of the the media interviews about the the dynamics and challenges of coming out to your broker-dealer, which is just something I had really never thought about before. I understand the challenges of just of coming out to your family and coming out to friends, but this whole phenomenon of trying to decide as an advisor whether you're going to be out to the advisor community and out to your broker dealer was just a, a I don't know an aspect or a challenge of it that I'd I'd never really thought about until you until you brought it up and and just at least for me kind of 
brought to mind a whole other set of of challenges I think our industry has around diversity and inclusion of just the 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 fear of even trying to decide whether you want to be part of a diversity and inclusion group in the first place and making the world aware of that was really striking to me as something I never I never thought about as a whole other layer of our industry challenges. Yeah, it sure is. And I think that's why it's been important for me to keep the conversation going. And so when I was asked to be on the Diversity and Inclusion Council at LPL back in 2018, I was given the instruction that as part of the council, there's 18 of us, as part of the council, my role was to show up as the lesbian in the group. Yes, I'm a woman. Yes, I've been in the business, you know, 25 years, but my role was to really help them understand my issues in my community as a gay person and also to help them understand what are the conscious bias or what are the things that they need to understand more about us as a community to not only serve us, you know, as advisors and and employees in this industry, but also our clients and prospective clients. And and so we've really had a lot of discussion around that in the last couple of years. And so I'm just trying to keep that alive with the Rainbow Network and try to see what do we need to do to serve our community as advisors? And then also, what do we do to serve the general public? Because there's over 11 billion LGBT people in this country. And so I think people don't realize there's a lot of us. (laughs) We're everywhere. And and so... How do you think about this in a in a in a broker dealer context? You know, I I know you because we've crossed paths a few times over the years, man. I know you're I'll, I'll say uh, fairly comfortable to be outspoken, <laughs> perhaps more so than than some others, which I'm I I would imagine helps a little bit in trying to decide whether you're whether you're coming out and coming out to your broker dealer. But I mean, like, how should we think about that for the? the typical advisor who maybe is is not out or is trying to decide whether to come out and and how you put that issue on the table for for working i guess in a broker dealer in an RAA i mean i think it's it, broadly it's what is it like to to think about whether or not to come out to your work colleagues and your essentially your platform like the the advisor platform that you work under Well, that's obviously such a personal decision because of our experiences and where we've come from, our culture. Many people of color have real issue coming out in any situation because they are have found that they have even more discrimination. So I think for myself, what I'm trying to always do is be that, you know, beacon of light that says, you know, if you want to live an authentic life and you want to just be who you are in the world showing up is important. So when you come out, you know, to the broker dealer, to your supervisor, your OSJ, your peers, sometimes, you know, we have to see how we're going to do it because it makes us nervous. And, and so when I'm saying something to a peer who's LGBT and trying to help understand why they haven't come out, Usually what I'm doing is I'm just listening to their story. I just want to know their story and why they're so afraid. A lot of that fear is because they built their practice on a facade or at least a part of them that they felt um, was comfortable, you know, to show the public, but that their personal life is something that they might be 
less comfortable with. Because when you approach the LGBT discussion, a lot of us, you know, think of things in our heads. And and what comes to your head first is what your experience is with either someone you've met who's LGBT or how, how you were raised or different discussions you've had. So I think that's why it's so hard to to know. Coming out is just, it's, it's hard to do. We have to do it every day. That's the other thing I don't think people understand. LGBT have to come out every day. We have to decide every day, are we going to come out? You know, are I'm at the grocery store. Because just it's a uh... It's a it's a big world, you know, un, until you walk around with a signboard above your head that just continuously communicates this message. We're always meeting new people. We're always uh, talking to people that maybe don't know or haven't heard or haven't gotten the message yet. And so every every interaction with even a new, a new or even existing community may still be the the first time that person finds out that you are out. It is. And what happens too, I mean, even if it's just at the grocery store and I'm shopping with my wife and she's gone off to get the, you know, vegetables and I'm standing over here and um, someone says, can I help you? And I say, no, I'm waiting for my wife. I have to, you know, I could take a quick second and I go, do I just say who I am and do what I do? Or do I say, no, I'm okay. I'm just going to be right here. And or I'm I'm waiting for someone, or I'm waiting for my spouse, or like, do I need to make this an issue by using the word wife? Right, and and so it's just so odd and awkward, and it happens all day long. So it's not even just those people that are closest to you that you're trying to understand what their bias are or what they're afraid of, but it's also um, you know the grocery attendant or the the person in the restaurant or or someone else, and so. I think for some of us, we just get tired of worrying about it. And I guess that's where I am in my life at 59. I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to take up space right here in the room. And if you don't like it, it's okay with me because I'm not going to leave the room and I'm not going to leave the conversation, even if it makes you fearful. And so earlier in my career, I was much better about I think being a little bit quiet. And so I would tell peers in the industry and I would be a little more quiet about it. But now that I'm 59 and I'm a grandma, I don't, I'm, I'm not apologizing for anything anymore. I've got a good, strong business with good, strong people. Not all of them are LGBT, but the people that I work with know that I am a lesbian. No, I use that word out loud and will continue to, to do that for all of us so that when they have a person in their family that is gay, they come to me and they say, Laura, help me understand, how do I talk about this? Or they have a, a daughter that is trans and, and wanting to have an operation. And they come to me and say, I want to support this, but my husband doesn't and we're fighting, help us. You know, so those are the kind of conversations I'm really interested in having and have had the honor to have. Um, so I think it's important for us to come out if in fact we can do that um, in a, in our own lives. And it's not, we have to get over the fear uh, of being vulnerable to do that. But I think sometimes it does take, as you get older, to develop that thick skin. Although I see a lot of the millennials coming out now, and I love them. I love that generation because they're just standing, standing up strong and being who they are. 
And I think that's one of the things that when I see at the conferences and places I attend, I attract a lot of younger people because they're like, you're so strong in who you are and say who you are. I want to be like that. I'm like, you're already like that. (laughs) Just continue. Just continue because we need you here. But I am struck that even as you noted, you, you were you were more quiet about it in in the earlier days of your career. And I know you've 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 been in this profession for quite a while now. And so I, I don't know, can you talk to us about that evolution? I mean, what what shifted, what changed for you in in doing this over the years that that now this is a I, I don't know. I was going to say a more comfortable conversation, but if not, at least a, a conversation you're more comfortable to have that it sounds like you weren't as much in the past. Well, and I think some of that is part of my generation. You know, in the LGBT community, we have three generations, basically. And it's a silence generation. Our people in their 80s right now, they, they had to be very quiet. And then the pride generation, it's kind of like the baby boomers. You know, we were part of the Stonewall riots. And I was born in the 60s. So initially, you know, even though there were a lot of people in, in my generation, the pride generation, speaking about LGBT and speaking about issues, it wasn't until 1973 that it was actually removed as a mental illness or disorder. So when you think about that kind of rejection... So you you remember a world growing up where thinking about being gay or lesbian was literally classified as a mental disorder. Yes, yes. And I had a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, her mom came out lesbian. Watching her plight, losing her family, being kicked out of her church, I mean, just severing ties with everyone, that was that was her, her, her lifelines to have to rebuild a new family. You know, when when you see that kind of rejection, you go, boy, that's not me. I'm not doing that. I'm going to learn how to be a good girl. I'm going to learn how to be normal, or I'm going to learn how to do this thing. And and I'm going to, you know, walk it for a while so that I don't get rejected so much. And I think that's part of the issue for a lot of folks. And so early in my career, I wanted to be a financial planner. I I wanted to help people and I wanted to have conversation about money and what's important about it. And and I've always been interested in, in the behavior of it, but not necessarily what it can buy. And so to have those conversations, I had to be real in who I was, but I had to be careful because I didn't want clients to come in and, you know, have those trusted conversations with me and then find out I'm lesbian. So I just tiptoed around it until I found a way to say, well, you know, this is kind of who I am. And, and either that was okay, or we ended the conversation, had a good financial plan, and then they moved on to someone else maybe to manage their money. So, it, but now what happens when someone comes in, I usually, you know, have my website up on, on the conference screen and say, you know, so how'd you find me? Was it through social media? Was it, you know, 
uh, a friend. And, and just through by, my work in the Rainbow Network. And- have you seen it? And so now, you know, you see a lot of people Google me before they come in. And because I'm making sure that LGBT and lesbian and those words are all over, I want them to know that. And if they don't, I say, well, do you know my wife? She's a massage therapist in town. We're both small business owners. She's been here 30 years. Most people know her. And they're like, oh, no, I didn't know you had a wife. Or yes, I do know her. So um, I try to get it now in that first conversation rather than down the road. And so that that becomes part of the so there's kind of two things that strike me about that one just that in essence i guess your both that first conversation but even your your website effectively becomes a filter for this not that you necessarily have to put on your homepage like lesbian financial planner <laughs> fyi and like a banner or anything but but the words and the language are there enough that if a if a prospective client is going to have a problem with that, it's out there enough that they're probably going to just move right along on their way and not contact you and spare everybody a conversation that wasn't going to work out anyways. And and that your your website effectively just becomes a partial filter for clients who may not be a good fit. Here's the funny thing. Well, yeah, but here's the funny thing. So I did have it kind of embedded in there first. <laughs> and then by the end of 2016, I said, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to put it out there. So when you talk about the banner on the homepage, if you go to my website, which is familywealthmanagementgroup.com or familywmg.com, you'll see on the, on the homepage at the bottom, I have become a certified lesbian business. So I did put it on the front page. Because I said, you know what, I really want to make sure going forward the next 10 years, I want to make sure that people know it. And I want to make sure when they have a question about it, they either come to me or they don't come in the door. Because I don't have a lot of time now to spend. And I only want to spend it with quality people who are going to be a part of who I am as a person and not have a lot of questions or judgment. So yeah, I did actually put it on there and I did become certified because I thought that is such an interesting concept. So I am lesbian. So how do I, you know, make that even more credible? Well, I go to the Gay Lesbian Chamber of Commerce and we have a national Gay Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, which I am a member. I'm also a member of the one here in Georgia. And you're able to be certified. I said, well, what do we do to get certified? And the information I had to give them was tremendous. I had to give them all sorts of financial data, copy of my marriage license. I mean, all these different things. And I was like, this is wonderful because they they used it the criteria the same as what they did for women-owned business. And so it's extensive. And I also had to have an interview. Someone came to my office. I mean, they had to make sure that I had at least 51% ownership of this business. I'm 100% owner, so that's easy to try. Track. But I mean, it was really quite an invigorating process because I thought, you know what, this really does help to legitimize us. And so it puts me now on a list um, for major corporations who are interested in diversity and inclusion. And a lot of them now have that department. And I can be put on a supplier's list to help employees or to help employees who are leaving the company or whatever to talk to them and have an open conversation about who they are. So, cause they know 
I'm a lesbian right up front and they want to choose me because of that. So yeah, it really, again, opened some doors. So then I also took my website and said, well, how else can I make this happen? I put a picture of Susan and I on it. And I used to just say LGBT. And then I said, no, we need to have the words. I want the words out there too. Um, so we did that. We added the Q because at first I didn't understand how important that was. Because again, I'm in the pride generation. One of my niece has come up through the ranks and she came home from college and said, Aunt Laura, I'm queer. And I'm like, what does that mean? Are you gay? I said, are you bisexual or are you lesbian? She said, I'm queer. I said, you're confusing the hell out of me. What are you talking about? And she said, Laura, I am not going to say who I am and how I am. It's not a binary situation. I just am queer fluid. I just know I'm queer. And I don't care if that defines something that you're used to hearing. But I think it's condescending of you to even say that I have to choose. And I was like, oh, my God, this is your generation. I love this. So so we have to think about terms of, you know, our gender doesn't has to necessarily be you know, qualified in a binary situation, there's multiple layers of expression. And um, so she really helped me understand. So we added the cue. So and on my website, you know, when you see that part of the page, you'll see there's links to several different organizations, there's white papers, there's fact sheets, I really started saying, how can I really make sure that in this industry, I become known as that lesbian financial planner that I really want people to know that and say, you know, she's really the same as us. Uh, But she's that lesbian financial planner, isn't she? You know, I really want that conversation because I think through the years, it's going to help normalize the overall conversation. And I'm, I'm struck as well by the, the point that you'd made earlier of, of this concern of if, if I don't come out to my clients, while we're doing all this deep financial planning and trust building and and then and then I come out later or they or they find out later that is there a risk that the trust is now undermined because they suddenly learned this new different thing about me that I I hadn't expressed to them up front if I wasn't out with them from the start right right and a lot of people have judgment about lgbt or they're fearful and and so i think if we're building trust and i don't trust you enough to tell you who i am 100% as a person then how do you trust me with your money and how do you trust me with who you are uh, you know i have 86 families that i work with and about 45 million under management and i'm in a comfortable place And so I say, well, I want to work with people who they might even have some bias about it. I would rather have them have a bias about it and try to understand who we are rather than be so judgmental and and not want me to handle their money because it's a problem. Or the other thing, of course, is if they're in their peer group and they say, well, you know that Laura LaTourette, she's a lesbian. I want them to say, well, yeah, I know that. I've been a client of hers 10 years. You know, so that they help normalize that conversation, even if they don't realize it. Because I'm here in the South. I'm in Georgia. I'm in a small rural town. I mean, there's there's a good community here of LGBT, but they're not as loud as I am about it. And so I really need for people to know who I am so that it doesn't become 
a problem for either of us in the future. You know, in our business, we have to watch what we say. And we have a lot of rules and regulations about privacy, which I agree, I think we should. But my clients don't, or people who are prospective clients, they can say anything they want about me. So I would rather have my door open with some of those things that might be uncomfortable for people. So they know right up front, you don't like me because I'm a lesbian, I get it. I don't even care. If you want to get to know me first, and then not like me, I think that's that's <laughs> better for you. But again, that's that's up to you as a person. You know, and I've been dealing with that since I've been in the community. I raised two kids here and we went through a lot of discussion and we had a town hall meeting one time because, of course, they were trying to make it illegal and they did for um, same sex couples to marry. And I I went to that town town hall meeting and I was not going to speak. And Susan's like, yeah, you're not going to speak right. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> you went to the meeting. We know it's going to. Ah, yeah. Well, and and really, you know, it, I went there to to hear what was being said. And I had friends from Rotary there. It was a tough thing for them to look me in the eye because they were on the opposing side. And and three of them had their speak, and then they were going to leave the room, and I got up to speak. And I said, you know, wait a minute. I need you to wait. And I kind of called them out at the door. I said, I listened to you. You need to listen to me. And, you know, having raised two children here, one of them being valedictorian, the other one being on the football team, who was the only one of that year, um, of athletes to go to college on a merit scholarship. I have raised children in this community and have been a taxpayer and a, and a business owner and many things that all of you are. So I'm not any different than you are. And, and so I think if you want to have conversations about how do we, how do we do this? We do it the same way everyone else does. We have the struggles. We have the expectations. We have problems with our teenagers. We, you know, all try to balance going to all the activities and also working. We really don't have a lot of differences. And so, you know, we want to be loved and we want to have shelter and food. I mean, there's not a lot of difference. So, you know, if you want to look at a real person and and look at who I am, let's have a conversation about it before you just hate me because I love this woman. It just doesn't make sense. And um, that was very helpful for my business, actually, because I got clients who wanted to come in because of that, you know, um, it wasn't an expectation, but it certainly did happen. And then I had other clients, even in the last few years say, you know, why do you have to wear it on your sleeve? You know, we're at a, a community event sitting at the same table, you know, having a couple of drinks. And he's like, why do you always have to wear it on your sleeve? I said, well, where would you like me to wear it? <laughs> Where do you, you know, you walk up to someone, you say, this is my wife, you know, and we da 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 these are our kids, that's what we do. I'm doing the same thing. And he said, oh, I, I didn't think about it that way. Okay. You know, but because at first he said, well, you would get more clients if you would just be quiet about it. I said, why do I want more clients? Well, you know, why do I, you know, no, I'm not I'm, doing that. And I'm not even sure that's necessarily true that you'd have more clients if, if, if you were quiet about it, I mean, it strikes me there is a piece of this that, like, just from the broader advisor marketing context, you know, we, we, most of us advisors tend to do well when 
we're we're differentiated in some way about about what we do and who we serve. And so, you know, granted for some advisors, like I go pick a particular specialization I'm going to focus in. You know, your context is a is a little bit different than hey, I, I'm going to choose to specialize in LGBT issues or being an IRA expert or a tax expert or whatever else it is. But there's still a similar context that at the end of the day saying that I am a lesbian advisor ju- does put a distinction out there that you know will not resonate with some people and will resonate with other people but you know it's pretty much how any business actually ends out working they just may hinge on some different differentiators yeah i think so too and i think it also has to be with where you are in your life you know and and what you're doing i've always felt i should build my business you know, around people that are similar to me, you know, business owners, um, entrepreneurs, I'm a scrappy entrepreneur, women, you know, strong women, professional women, widows, you know, educators, professors, you know, so I built my practice on my terms to begin with, with the types of people I want to spend the day with, you know, early on in my career, I went and did a Bill Backrack weekend, and I'll never forget it because on the plane coming home, I didn't have enough money to go there to begin with. Put it on a credit card, financed what, my. What were, you, what were you going? What were you going for? Was this the like va- values based selling? Yes, days? the values based selling years ago is like back in two thousand three or something. And this weekend was so expensive, I couldn't afford it. And I built my practice on credit card, you know, because that's all I had. I mean, there was no personal. <laughs> no one behind me with purse strings that said, here, you can do this now. So I said, but I'm going to do this because I'm going to learn how to do this. And, and he was saying, do it your way. So I took copious notes, came back on the plane and sat down and started writing out my process. And one of the biggest takeaways was, how do you want to spend your day? If you spend six hours a day, eight, 10, how do you want to spend your day and with who? And that's what I said I was going to do. I was going to spend it with people I liked, with people I could connect with, with people who were vulnerable and wanted to talk deeper than just about investments because I was not an investment jockey. And I was going to really get to the heart of the matter to begin with, or I wasn't going to have those type of clients. Because to me, if I just took a client because of how much money they had, that was prostitution. And so I had some real strong rules to begin with. That's a pretty strong statement right there. It's a damn strong (laughs) idea. It's terrible. But I think of myself that way. I'm like, I'm only going to be able to work with people I truly trust and understand and can be a part of their lives because anything other than that is, is, is against who I am as a person. I just... You know, I can't. And so there have been situations where people, uh, you know, prospective clients came in and I was like, oh, I don't like who they are in the community. I don't like what they stand for. I'm going to have them come in just to see who we are. And I would, I'd say, no, it just, I don't think it's a good fit. But I can give you some, you know, other references of other people in the industry in our area that might fit for you. And I just have never regretted doing that because I think that was important to me to be able to be who I was fully. You know, I mean, I've just been a very independent person all my life. So to bow down just because of money, I've never done that. And and I won't do that. So so talk to us a little bit about the 
advisory firm itself, you had, you had mentioned earlier 86 clients and $45 million of assets under management. So tell us a little bit more about the, the firm, what it looks like, who you serve, what you do for them. So sure. I started, you know, in the business in 94, opened my practice here in Dahlonega in 98. And at that time, I was the law trade agency. Decided I wanted to have, you know, kind of an agency with with employees and other reps and doing insurance as well as investments. And then decided that really wasn't good, a good fit for me. So in 2007, I just went to North Georgia Wealth Management Group as a name for the company and really doing primarily financial planning and investments only. And I spun off the insurance piece. And so when I did that, it it really, as you know, in 2007, we, we got into a recession very soon after that. So I had myself and I had an assistant who I was raising in the business and he's a CFP today, has his own practice. He was with me 10 years. So he and I buckled down and said, okay, I may not bring in any new clients through the recession, but I'm going to make sure that we hold on to everybody. And I'm going to make sure that what we're doing for planning is first and foremost, we've been using software for planning since 2003. And and we're going to just make sure that we're focusing on that. And that's really what I did and didn't lose any clients through the recession. Um, So what we really do as a firm today, I'm a solo. Today, I'm going to be working to create more of an ensemble in the next 10 years. But it's taken me from 2007 to today to decide I didn't want to be a solo anymore. So I kind of came into the industry as a solo, wanted to have more of an ensemble. It didn't work for me. And through the recession, I couldn't afford to do it anymore. So I went back to solo. And now I'm going back to. Uh, look at an ensemble practice in the future so that in 10 years I can retire, you know, sell the practice. So that's, that's my long term. So, so talk to us a little bit more about these shifts back and forth. Cause I, I, I'm always fascinated by these decisions of who decides to build a, a multi-advisor business and, and why, and, and particularly those that, that, then shift tracks as you did. You you spent 10 years building this multi-advisor, multi-agent firm and then decided to shift and and go solo. So what like what were you what were you what was your vision for what you were building in 98 when you launched this and what changed over the 10 years of doing it? Well, I think several things changed. Number one, I felt back then that I had to support everything financially. So I felt like if someone came into the business or someone moved over to my firm that I would have to support financially. And if I gave them everything, then they would just go out and, and bring in clients and, you know, bring in the, the money we needed and it would all come together. That didn't happen for me. I didn't, they didn't have a skin, any skin in the game. So financially, it was really heavy for me to carry. And 
that just kind of is who I am, you know, in my sibling lineup, I'm second born and was, you know, taught to be the guard dog. So I was just used to taking care of people and used to making sure they had everything that they needed first and then see if there's anything for me left at the end. And so that didn't work. It was very stressful. It was very heavy. I had a lot of persistent stress trying to make sure I'm helping each one of these people grow as a person or in their business or practice, but then not really asking them to help with the expenses. So I think my view of it was just just not in a good place. So was this was this still kind of the tra- I'll call it the, the traditional agency model like we're going to provide centralized home office support and give you a and, and give you a small base and then you can go out and and get clients and do business or was the dynamic like they weren't actually on that kind of variable comp structure you were trying to give them salary and then they they weren't hunting for business. No, it was that general agency uh, model that we had, you know, in the 90s. And the other thing, now there, I did have some people who came in wanting to work. And I said, well, then you'll have to just be on your own commission base, I'll take an override. Uh, But again, I didn't charge them for expenses. So it, it, they didn't have any skin in the game. So if they made money, great. If they didn't, they didn't. And they didn't have what I learned through it some of us are entrepreneurs and some of us just expect to catch what we, what we eat. You know, I don't expect anyone to feed me. I, I just am a person that if I want to do it, I'm going to just go do it and figure it out. And I realized that some people need a lot more of, um, more coaching than that. They need support financially. They just don't know how to do it. And it was better for me as a person in my own family to just pull back as a solo so that I could focus on on my family and the stability of my finances and not necessarily, you know, have that type of um, firm because I didn't know how to how to run it financially. So what I did was I said, well, let me then go mentor people instead and so, you know, I've, I've always tried to, like I'll, I'll be a solo, but then, and then I'll just, I'll do the mentoring I want to do to help and develop people, but I don't have to do but it. But I don't have to bring them in on paycheck. Expense structure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause that's what my wife would say. Well, then why do you have to always pay them? And I said, well, how are they going to eat? She said, well, we could eat better. <laughs> so you kind of go back and forth and I'm like, oh. Okay. So, so yeah, so then I did a lot and I still do mentoring now. I've got a couple of mentees who are going through CFP now. Um, I've always tried to take in a CFP mentor or even from the college, I've taken um, a couple of mentors. And then I also have tried through the years, I've had three interns in the summer from the Georgia program of financial planning um, to come in and help them understand the business of a solo practitioner as a model, this business model, um, so that then if they go into Atlanta and they see a bigger firm with those different business models, then, you know, they have some comparison. So I've done it that way rather than to finance it. Uh, it strikes me as well that there's, I, I think there's a broader parallel to the struggle you you had in this model and and frankly, kind of the, the whole independent broker dealer model that I, I feel like is struggling from the same woes. You, 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 you provide this centralized 
resource, the centralized cost structure for supporting advisors, you get an override on whatever business they they do, whatever production they they have. But you know, the advisor just decides, well, how how hard do I want to work or not? At what income level do I want to be at or not? And their decisions are completely dissociated from the centralized home office, which are like, you know, we kind of have fixed overhead expenses that aren't so helpful if you decide to to dial back your practice a bit. And at least the BDs have largely tried to to work through this by getting large enough with enough economies of scale to say, hey, all right, if we have enough reps, a few may not may decide not to grow, but others will, and this will average out. But it's it's to me just a, an interesting parallel in the challenge that BDs I find often have the same issue. You know, we we want to grow, which means we need to get those those advisors downstream to grow because we've got this fixed overhead and our staff want raises. So go all you go get more clients. And there's this downstream pressure. I mean, the, the broker dealers do it on their end. And I think the RIA custodians do it on their end as well for the same reason. Like y'all got to go grow because we need our growth to manage our overhead expenses. And, and we don't get our growth unless you go grow. So advisors go grow. And we don't always want to because we may be fine with where our own practice. Well, exactly. And then for me in 2014, well, I had my first grandchild. And so I said to self, <laughs> well, and they lived in Hawaii because my son is in the Navy. He, he's a chief petty officer in the Navy. So I'm like, okay, so I have my first grandchild. She lives in Hawaii. I need to get there. And I need to stop raising these other CFPs right now or trying to, you know, create this firm so that Atlanta big firms don't come up and take all my business and just let it go and just become this solo for a few years. I don't even have to grow if I don't want to and and just service my clients, be good to them and be a grandma. And, and so for me, that has been just the most enjoyable time is spending time with my grandchildren. They've now since moved to Charleston, and I have another set of twins now in Atlanta, so I've got a total of four. And so as part of my practice, you know, my clients know I take off time a couple of weeks in the summer, and I take off, you know, time all through the year just to go spend time being grandma. You know, we live in such a wonderful remote industry. I mean, I do everything remote now. I do have an office so that I can meet clients here in my town, but I don't necessarily have to. And so we're building this next 10 years around the idea that family wealth management group not only means LGBT, because family is an important word in my culture, but it also means bringing in the new generation and and other people of color my daughter-in-law is latina and she wants to be in my business and i want her to be in my business in the next few years so we're going to build out this structure now to it, it to not have to include the walls of the office space that i use today in the way that we used to use it and open up to the idea of what is the financial services industry going to look like in 10 years? You know, most of my clients will be passed by then. I'll keep my clients always. But what about the new clients? What are their expectations? And how do we build this now for us in the future? And not with me just 
supporting it 100% with my own, you know, credit card debt? How do I build it out in the future? And and that's what I'm really exploring right now, which I'm really excited about. I was going to ask, I mean, how are how are you looking at this model or or doing it differently in the future given that you were you were in a multi-advisor environment, not happy with those results when went solo for 10 years have have had success in the solo model for 10 years, but now moving back into a multi-advisor environment, like how, what are you, what are you looking at in, in how to do a multi-advisor firm in the future that is lessons learned from the way you did it in the past? Well, I think one of the most important things I've learned is I need someone to help manage the business part. I'm really good with clients. I really enjoy the client relationship. I've been really good and successful with the portfolios, but I really don't want to manage the business part. So lucky for me, my daughter was in the business in the last couple of years as a trader. And she lives here in Atlanta. And now is close, you know, closer to 40. She may not appreciate me saying that, but she is. And so I am hiring her to be my CEO. And I've heard people say, you know, hire your mini me, this and that. She's totally not my mini me. She has so many skills that I don't and can really organize and manage, I think, this practice so that if we can take me out of the management, the day to day, and just get me on to helping to build the client relationship and build some other reps that come in in the next 10 years, that that mentoring that I've always liked to do and I'm good at it will be the part that I do and she'll be the one running the business. We've also hired one of the business solutions team, a woman to come in and be the virtual CFO of my business because I'm the personal CFO for so many of my clients who are small business owners and I help them make decisions and we help build the budgets and the cash flow and I help them do everything and at the end of the day then I come back to do mine and it's you know on a Saturday Sunday you know it just it's a lot to running a business so what if if that wasn't what I did as well 10 years ago and it caused me a lot of stress well what if I hire my daughter who I fully trust and is now you know a, a competent adult and can really take things from here and go forward and I hire someone else to help teach her what to do I can tell her what I've done to get us here, but I don't know if I know what to do to get me to retirement and get me out of here. So, but I think they do. And I think between the two of them, they'll help build this practice on the inside and then just tell me what to do on my my end of it. So I know for a lot of advisors, this is one of those things like feels neat in theory, but then you have to actually give control to someone else and have them make decisions that may or may not be the same decision you're going to make in yours yourself. And then like it, it, it screeches to a halt or, or gets more, way more challenging. So like, I mean, how are you thinking about that and, and, and looking at that dynamic of actually trying to give up some control of your own business? Well, and I think that's personality. I've always been a good delegator. So I, what I know to be true is I got me here and I, and, and to get me here, I feel very successful. I've done it. I've gotten, gotten myself to a point, but I really think that going forward, 
it's going to take someone younger who's not been in the business, who can see things more objectively to work with me and say, you know, I think this is how we need to run this part of it so that I can then focus on what my skills are. You know, it's the type of when, when you look at legacy or you look at succession planning, there are people who built businesses that think you only have one way to do it and you can't do it any different. That's not who I am. I'm more of a collaborator. Um, so when I started looking at, well, who am I? Am I able to do this in the last couple of years? I thought, sure I am. Uh, you know, I expect and can support that she's going to do things differently because that's who she is. And I've seen her do things differently and have a successful outcome. So just because I don't, she doesn't do it my way, I don't see that that story is going to change. I think it's going to be even stronger. I think our family legacy in 10 years will, you know, hopefully she and my son will buy the practice. That That's the intention today. So we'll see how it all works out because you never know. Because I said to her, you may not like running this business. You may work here a couple of years and say, you know what, this is not working for me. And then I'll hire another CEO. But I know I've talked to a few women at LPL who are peers of mine. Julia Carson, is one of them recently at, at Focus. And that's exactly what she did. She said, you know what, get yourself out of the middle. You know, if you're a visionary, and you're an entrepreneur, and you like to create and build and do, do that, but get yourself out of the structural part of the, the business itself, and, and all the operations. You know, I just had another assistant leave. And I've had, you know, for 25 years, you tend to have people that stay varying periods of time. I've had people stay nine years, seven years, and then in the last 10 years, I've had them stay only three. So when you get and you're training an assistant and you're trying to make sure they understand how to support you and you've done everything you can through the hiring process to make sure this is the candidate and you've given them the salary they desire and all the things, after they've been with you at least two years, they're finally really trained. They're finally really able to stand on their own. And then sometimes they leave for for reasons that have nothing to do with you. <laughs> and that has happened to me now, you know, two times. And so I say, well, I'm tired of training my admins. What if I hire the CEO and I've got a really good remote admin right now who's our operations manager? What if I get those two? to hire and train. You know, that's their job. And and I get totally taken out of that. I can help mentor. I can give them the checklist that I use. We can, you know, refine. We use checklists for everything. So I have a training checklist. And, and I can make sure that they know what I've done. But then, you know, there may be some things that come up that they need to, to learn that I haven't taught them. So, you know, I think as a collaborator, it's easier for me to see that I have a future and if I want to retire at some point and really have value in this business, then I've got to get out of the middle. It's not as valuable with me in the middle. When you look at this from the this kind of path of 10 years to to retire, I, I am still curious, like, wh- why driving it this way with hot, you know, trying to bring in other advisors and other team and 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 growing it that way to to sell down the road. I mean, there, there's no shortage of folks these days that seem pretty interested in buying pretty much any practice at any size up and down the, 
the line and 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 spectrum. So, is there something that that drives you towards this? I want to bring these additional folks in and and sell that in ten years, as opposed to just saying. I'm just going to keep going until I don't feel like it anymore, and then when I do, I'll 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 hang the for sale sign and 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 let the buyers come and offer whatever they're going to offer. Mm. I used to have that idea that I would just do it till I didn't want to, and either sell it or just you know stop bringing in clients. And as they passed away, I would just take that income as retirement income, and as you know, we all would just kind of naturally pass away. And then two years ago at Christmas, when the family was gathered together, my adult children started talking to me about, you know, well, mom, what are you doing? And, you know, being a financial planner all these years, you know, we've seen, you know, things come and go. And 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 what do you think is going to happen in the future? When are you retiring? And we had a wonderful conversation. I must say that I'm very close to my two children and I'm very close to their spouses. And the four of them have different and unique skill sets. We all talk about everything at the table. So I know some families can't talk about, you know, religion, politics, sex, rock and roll. We do. It's all up there for discussion and we can disagree with each other too. So we had some good conversation about it. My son's going to stay in the service for his 20 years and retire. Brianne, my daughter, was trying to decide what to do. She was in the industry, just getting into the industry at that point, and trying to decide, well, what should we do and, and what does it look like? She liked the financial services industry. She was surprised because um, she was in the healthcare industry prior to that, working in academia. But she liked it. And so her husband is an IT programmer master's in security IT. And, you know, and my daughter-in-law is, is there a very uh, vivacious sales type um, person. She's right now able to stay at home as a stay at home mom. But we know that a lot of those skills that she was using when she was working, she's definitely using today to help keep the family supported. So when we all started talking, the six of us, including Susan, my wife, we were like, Well, you know, some people, you know, have this legacy planning. My kids jumped up and down about it and started saying, well, then, you know, maybe their kids would want to be financial planners. Maybe we should do some family business. Well, had I ever thought about it? And I said, well, no, actually, I hadn't. And so through the last, you know, year for sure, I've given them my financials. I've talked to them about struggles that I've had, especially the recession. I mean, the recession was hard. It was tough um, to be self-employed, let alone in the financial services industry. When you're fee-based, my income went down. I lost it, half of it, you know, overnight. So, you know, we talked about a lot of those things. And so they were just so enthusiastic and still are that they think that maybe the four of them could continue this business, not necessarily all of them being a financial planner, but maybe the four of them could continue this business and, you know, really look at at some legacy planning with it. So that's what gave me the, the idea. It certainly wasn't mine, but I've raised, you know, some really gifted, skilled adults and they are looking at this for 
for something that they think is really going to be a wonderful way in the future. You know, and so I said, well, start educating yourself. What do you think the future is going to look like in financial services? And the good thing is they've got me to understand some of the past, but it's not holding them to the past at all. So, you know, when we start building out everything we do now, you know, has to do with technology. I lost the internet for almost two weeks and we, we were still up and running. I've got a remote admin who's my operations manager in Chicago who keeps everything going. My daughter is in Atlanta, continue with the portfolios, you know, rebalancing, trading, whatever needed to happen. And I was talking to clients on the phone, either here at the office or at my house where I did have internet. So the... So the distributed nature of having a virtual team meant even when local internet went out, most of the team was still functioning just fine. We we didn't skip a beat, except for my issues that I had. But I could still have a client meeting, just didn't have the internet. So my team would email me the reports. I would print them at home and bring them into the office. You know, I think that's how it's going to be in the future. I think we're going to be doing, you know, telecommuting. We're going to have a lot more Skype appointments. I will still have my clients who are primarily here in the little town of Dahlonega that I live in. But I don't really want to build my practice just around my little town in Dahlonega where I live in. Because in 10 years, I may move also. You know, I I don't have to live here. But, you know, so you just... I think I don't mind change. I'm kind of a gypsy that way. I like change. Um, So I'm really vibrant again, thinking, well, what is the next 10 years going to look like? The other thing is I want to hire an LGBT rep. I really want to have a person who is in the younger generation, very comfortable in, in their you know, person. And I want that person to be really comfortable in my firm because I want that person to build out an LGBT model if that's what they want to do. That's what a, one of the things I'm really interested in pursuing. Well, if there's a advisor listening who's inspired by this, uh, this is episode 148. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 148, we'll, we'll have a link out to Laura's website if you want to get in touch and find a job opportunity. So talk to us a little bit about like the clients themselves. Who, who do you serve and what do you do for them? Oh, my clients. So a lot of them are LGBT elders. And so I am their advocate. We have to build our families, um, chosen families, because oftentimes there's some rejection in our own natural born families. So the, the community gets strong. But what happens is as as everybody ages, they lose their chosen family and oftentimes are left by themselves. So I have my LGBT clients that will come to me either just before, you know, maybe a couple of years before they lose one of their spouses. Maybe they have dementia and they say, you know, they already always handled all the finances and I don't know anything. So you have to do this for us. Or they come to me afterwards because, you know, maybe they were not the one that did the finances or they were, but they don't trust doing it by themselves and have no trusted uh, person to talk to. So I, I'm their advocate. I've gone to the hospital and uh, helped with some of the toughest decisions they've had. I help them find an estate planning attorney to make sure that those documents are tight and that they are able to speak who they are in their full story. So I work with, you know, attorneys who are either in my community or, 
very conscious about being an ally and how to respectfully talk to one of my clients or to the couple. And so I, I find that that gives me a lot of passion around it, but it also gives me, it fills my heart, you know, it just makes me feel important. And so I love that. That's a lot of my clients. The other um, clients I have are, you know, couples that come in and I'll have the gentleman tell me, you know, I'm getting ready to retire in a couple years and I've always taken care of this. And we've had three advisors, but I really wanted to find a woman advisor because when something happens to me, you have to take care of my wife. So I've had several of those types of clients that have been with me for years and years now. And then when we lose, you know, the husband, we've had so many conversations about what went high, you know, how we're going to do things that the transition, um, although it's painful and emotional, we stay together as a relationship. And, And I think for them, they've told me that that has been so important to them because they didn't have to find someone else that that treated them well and talked to them and educated them that we did that before they lost their husband. So I have, you know, and I call those clients traditional clients. They are those clients that ask me about LGBT, talk to me about Susan and I, say things like, well, you guys are different. You know, you, you, you don't do things like you know, all those other people. And I say, oh, yes, we do. You know, let's talk about it. But they're another really important part of my life because I, again, have been their advocates. I'm the one who's called for the long-term care claim and made sure I was there when the nurse came because sometimes, you know, they don't want to say what's really wrong or that they do need help. And I'll be the, you know, person in the room who's saying, oh, yeah, no, they can't do that either. (laughs) You know, kind of get in in the middle of things. I had one of them tell me that I was the ex-wife they never had. (laughs) And I said, yes, I am. I'm the one who's going to just keep saying things um, that that need to be said. And then, you know, both of the couples can or both of the people can talk about it. And then I've got professors. We're right here at the college. Um, There's a university here in town. And so I have several professors. My parents were teachers. My siblings are teachers. Spouses, they're, you know, my in-laws were teachers. Um, So I have a lot of educators in my family. So it seems that I got tracked educators as well. And so those are a lot of my clients. And then the, the fourth set would be the entrepreneurs, the scrappy entrepreneurs who do it their way, and then come, you know, 10 years outside of retirement and say, you know what, I need more liquid assets. (laughs) Because I've built this, I have these things, but I'm going to have to liquidate those to have, you know, assets to live on. So we really need to focus on this retirement income thing. And so I think that's what made prompted me too. I'm 59. I'm going, okay, Laura, you need more liquid assets. You know, I need more in my physical retirement account. I need to make sure that that there's money there. There's cash there. And it's not just that I know we could sell this or we could do this or, you know, those kinds of things. But I need to practice what I preach there with my entrepreneurs and say, we've always said pay yourself first, but that's always hard when when you're the type of person I am. I think about serving others and taking care of all of them. And then at the end of the day, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to pay my taxes. So I'm going to pay my taxes. Oh, yeah, I've got to do retirement. I will do that next month. So um, 
so those are my clients. They're all, I feel close to them. I'm, some of them, I've got their adult children as well. Love them dearly. Some of them, as they pass away, I don't want the adult children and we distribute. And I'm happy with that too. I'm fine with that. You know, it's just, it's a nice day. I, I, I have a nice practice. And what does the, the business model look like for what you do? Because, you know, when you talk about like, I'm helping file long-term care claims and I'm, I'm there when the nurses come and I'm, I'm in the meetings with the estate planning attorneys, not, not all of these things tie to our, our traditional models for, for how we get paid. So what is the, what does the business model look like for you? So 90% of my clients come in and do a plan first, because that's what I really try to say to them initially is I need to get to know you and you need to get to know you and understand you probably haven't had a lot of these conversations with your spouse or, or, you know, if you're by yourself in one setting. So if we sit down and we do a financial plan first, I think that's the most effective way to then take assets under management. And I do an advisory. 90% of my clients are advisory. Uh, so it's fees that I'm charging. And then if I have to implement insurance, I will do that as well. So if I implement long-term care or life insurance annuities, I'll do that as well. But that's only on an as-needed basis. So to get in the door, we do a plan first. I charge hourly for the plan, $250 an hour. There's comprehensive planning that I do for 10 hours as a minimum is kind of what I say to them. So a lot of them, we do at least 2,500. We use e-money software. We are actually using Wealth Vision today, but we're going to be switching back to the street version so my OSJ can help support me on my financial planning because that was another area that I know I can outsource some of it, but I want the, the nuts and bolts of it too with my clients. Um, so we'll be switching that here in the next month. But I, I've been using eMoney and I build them a website. And that right there takes us at least four meetings because I want to meet with them initially as an introductory meeting and just see who are you, what do we do, how do we fit. These are my services. And then I want to know from that meeting, do you think you want to do planning? And if you want to do planning, it's going to take us good three to four meetings. And those meetings are an hour and a half to two hours apiece. And I usually just say that 10 hours is, is a good broad number, but if it takes us 15 hours, then you have to pay me the rest. And so I, I kind of say that up front, you know, I'm going to do services for you on an hourly basis to do these plans. And I'm going to say that I think I can get this done in this period of time. But if it takes more than that, then we're really going to have to adjust it. So it, it so in, in, in a true sense, like, it it is an estimate with a fee minimum, but it is it is not a fixed fee. Like it will, it will be whatever hours right. it takes. And and so it may be that the person sitting with me just needs some debt strategy, or they just need to really get clear about some things with their retirement, or they want an asset allocation you know, check up that kind of thing. Well, then that might only be hourly consulting. And I can say, well, you know, let's just sit down for a couple of hours. Let me, you know, bring everything to me and I'll give you my best advice without going through 
the full process. I've had that happen. And then they come back two, three years later and say, okay, let's do a full plan. I'm getting ready to retire. And I want my spouse in this time. Because I try to get the spouses in, but sometimes it happens that there's one that talks more about what the financial world is. And the other one doesn't want to even be in the conversations. If it's an hourly consultation, I'll do that. So the planning is is really what I'm focused on because I, I really like to get to know them and I really want to sit down and, and ask them those questions about, you know, why is this important and what are you thinking about this and what does it look like? And if you did it today, this is what would happen, you know, that current versus projected. Then a, a lot of times um, if there is assets under management available, they will bring their assets to me. I'm kind of funny about that these days in the last 10 years, for sure, after the recession, I said, absolutely, everyone has to bring in all liquid assets that are available for investments. I want them to keep, you know, an emergency fund and those things in savings. I don't want any any savings money, but I, they can't have two advisors. You can't have, you know, Joe over here at the bank and and me doing this. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to you. And I can't work on partial basis. So if that's an issue, that's fine. Go to Joe, go to the other people. I get it. But, you know, when they bring in the assets under management, it's all to me. And we do it um, uh, with a fee, one to two percent. Some people, because there's a higher amount, we've really moved back to more of a retainer. So there's just a couple of those clients, too, that say, you know, that one percent, you know, if you've got 1% of 5 million, that's a little too much. So we're working more on a retainer, which I agree. You know, I think that that's fine as far as how I'm setting things. So, so essentially it's, it's a, it's a sliding scale AUM fee. So like, like starts at 2% on the low end, comes down to 1% as their assets rise. But by the time you get up to multi-million dollar, you may just do it for a negotiated retainer fee as opposed to continuing to calculate the Correct. AUM fee. Correct. And especially, you know, I've got clients who've been with me over 10 years. So, you know, it just, it's a relationship. And, and so out of curiosity, the, there's still the kind of the proverbial 1% number that bounces around out there, which when you look at the actual research in the industry, like advisors do charge well over 1% on average in smaller accounts. And, and less on larger accounts because it's a graduated fee schedule. But you know, if your fee schedule starts up close to two percent and breaks down from there as it rises, like do you do you get fee pushback on this? Do you do you feel concerns about a fee schedule that starts at that level? Or is it like much and do much ado about nothing in the industry? Yeah, I really don't. You know, I think most of my clients are closer to the one percent. Um and because my reputation has said, you know, if if you don't have, you know, half a million dollars, Laura won't take you. I've did, I have not said that, but uh, but I hear that. But so most of my clients are are you know more towards the one percent. But I say to them, you know, I think we we talk about fees all the time, and if you don't feel like you're getting the value, you shouldn't be here. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. If we come to a crossroads and you think, you know what, I can get it cheaper over there, then do it. I don't have a problem with that. Wish you the best over there. I do. I do. And, you know, sometimes people see my confidence as cocky. You know, I don't see it as cocky. I just say, you know, this is who I am. This is how I do it. If I'm running an ice cream stand and all I've got is vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry, and you want almond butter, well, I don't have it. 
And that's okay. But there's someone else who does, you know, so we have those conversations. I've every once in a while, I have someone, you know, pinch me on fees and say, well, you know, look what you made. I said, yeah. And, and what do you think? (laughs) I don't know. I mean, that's, you know, look what we've done this year. Yeah, so I, it's never been an issue for me. I've not had anyone leave because of fees. I can tell you that. I have not had anyone say, you're too expensive, I'm leaving. I've had someone say, you're too expensive, I'm not coming in. Will you bring down your fee? And I've said, no. I said, how can I bring down my fee? I don't even know you. I don't even know what I'm going to do to service your account. I don't even know five years from now how I'm going to need to advocate for you, how many hours I'm going to spend with your family, how, what I'm going to need to do to make sure behind the scenes you're protected. So I know for sure if I have my fees at a set rate and this is what I know I can do to make sure I stay in business and that I can offer you the services that I want to provide, I know that is the right number. And if you don't think it is, then... We shouldn't have a relationship. So so walk us through the rest of this meeting process. You said uh, the series of four meetings. So number one is is the the introductory. Is this like even they haven't become a client yet? This is essentially the prospect. Like, here's what we do. Tell me about you. Figure out if we fit. Here's here's what we do for clients and 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 figure out if they want to engage with you or not. So is is that typically a a one meeting sales process for you? Either they they will or will not sign up at the end of the meeting? Well, no, I I really want them to go home and think about it. But I I don't like them to sign up at that meeting. When somebody contacts the office, usually through an email or phone call, we send out an introductory kit. And that kit sometimes is mailed, a lot of times now is emailed. And in that kit, it talks about, you know, what my fees are and, and how I work and to make sure to go to my website. And it's got some links in there. There's also a form that we use called Discovery. And it's on my website. And people can take it. I've told other advisors, go ahead and use it as a template. You know, maybe add your own pictures, your own logo. <laughs> it's a good way to, to discuss things. And that discovery form that they do first, I want to know, actually, do they do they actually do the form? Do they bring it with them? And Be- and because it talks about are, things. Those are good ways to measure and understand how invested they actually are in the process. Yeah, and how vulnerable they're they're going to be. There's a lot of vulnerability questions in there. Not as much about investments. I don't care how much money they have. That's not the the questions in there. So the questions in there are what keeps you up at night. You know, what do you want your kids to know? What's your legacy? What were you taught? about money? You know, how do you relate to money? What's the worst thing you've done? Uh, what are the mistakes you've made? Have you been in lit- litigation? Those are the kinds of questions that are on that discovery form. So then prior to coming in, my assistant, you know, confirms the appointment and says, make sure you bring in the discovery form. When they come into the office, then I'm going to sit there on that introductory appointment and really evaluate not only who they are, but who I am in my relationship to them. Because sometimes I've known them in the community in other ways, on other boards or through the kids in school or something. And so I say to them, I want to make sure that we can really develop a business relationship. And because if you're going to come work with me, it's got to be for a long period of time. You know, I'm just not one that likes to just come in and and work together for a little 
you know, a little while and then move on. I really like long-term relationships. I tell them how many households I have. I tell them how much assets I have under management. And I tell them that, you know, this is something I need for them to really think about because if they're going to do a plan, I'm going to disrupt their life for the next six weeks. They're going to have to get organized. They're going to have to grab things together. It's going to be like a therapy appointment every Tuesday at two o'clock. You know, I'm going to really get you into a structure because if I don't get you in a structure that starts momentum, then it falls off the the shelf and you'll never, you know, finish. And then I'll get distracted because I've got ADHD. So you've got to sit here with me on my structure and say, okay, do I have time in my schedule to do this? And are you committed to doing it? Because if you're not, then let's not do it. Let's wait a year, six months, whatever. So I really try to set up those expectations because that's really what I expect. If you're going to work with me on a plan, we're going to sit down and we're going to hammer through it. The other thing I say to them is I need both of you in on the conversation if it's spouses, you know, because you can't plan with one person. I understand someone might not want to have these conversations. We're going to have in our planning process, we have a a meeting where we sit down and look at all the, the numbers and the paper and the financials. We understand the cash flow and the balance, you know, of how you run your your monies. And then after that first meeting, we've got goals and dreams. And I don't want to look at paper. I just want to understand who you are, what your relationship is with money. And I need both spouses at that meeting for sure. And then after that, we'll either do some estate planning, if there's some, you know, bigger things to talk about or business planning, or we'll sit down and look at the draft. I'll bring something back to you and say, okay, in our third meeting, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I've seen on paper and and what you've said to me. And this is what I'm thinking might be some recommendations. What are your priorities? Where are you on this? And then we will deliver that plan in the fourth meeting. Some clients are not even wanting a written plan anymore. They just want it in the vault of the of Wealth Vision or um, eMoney. And so we've got it in there as a placeholder. And we've got my observations and recommendations in writing. So we know where we're starting. But a lot of people like that that written plan because they can then put it on their shelf and show it to the adult kids and we've got the inventory of everything they have and they have a place that they can go to they bring it in (laughs) on an annual basis and they say can you update my net worth and we put a a different document in there so it, it really takes a lot of time so I only do a couple of those a month I just I can't physically do more I can't get involved with people in their lives and try to understand and organize and clarify more than just a couple people a month. So we'll schedule them out, you know, to, you know, uh, come in and then be able to go through that process. My process is all written down. I did that for training. And I did it initially when I went to that Bill Backrack. I said, okay, here's my process. I'm going to meet with the, I'm going to have a prospective client, get an introductory kit. Back then we mailed everything. Here's the pieces in that kit. And then they're going to come in, you know, a week or two later, and we're going to have an introductory meeting. Then we're going to have a documents meeting. Then we're going to have a vision or goals and dreams. Then we're going to have a draft. And then we're going to have delivery. I'm still using that same process today. And it have all the steps written out with all the things that are in the kits at the different points so that when I've had to train in operations, I take that out and just go through it step by step with everyone um, so that they know this is the expectation and this is how you make those appointments. Because the other thing is if I have someone make appointments and they're like, okay, let's make three right now, 
that really gets it in their calendar than if they, well, let's do it and then we'll call and see when we can do it and then we'll do this and we'll do that. And I'm like, no, 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 I can't do that. You got to, you got to get in my calendar for six weeks. Um, after they've done the plan and we've gone through that, a lot of times they'll want me to do assets under management. And we'll, of course, identify the places that we can. And then we'll have that conversation too. And I do that conversation at delivery usually. That conversation then goes to the next step, which would be if we implement this plan, I'm going to charge you X for percentage to handle your, your fee, to handle your portfolio. And I think you need this life insurance. And I'm going to get a commission on that too. I'll run some scenarios and we'll know what that is. But, you know, these are the things that we can do, or you can take this plan and implement it yourself or with, you know, other advisors. That's fine too. Usually that's where we get that commitment about, yes, I want to, or, you know, give me, give me some time, wait till I retire, those kinds of things. I'm struck by that. I guess, Bill Backrack framework of, of intro meeting, documents meeting, vision goals meeting, draft meeting, delivery meeting. But it sounds like that's that's a five meeting piece you're running for. So did, did you essentially merge together documents and, and vision and goals? Or are you trying to get documents in advance of meeting number two because you're giving them your discovery form and then you do mostly vision and goals in number two? Like, how do you how do you mix that part together? Well, the first meeting is the introduction. And so the introduction meeting, I don't count as part of the planning. I count that as just an introduction. And they tell me a lot at that meeting. And oftentimes they actually do bring documents. I don't ask them to, but they do. <laughs> but then the, clearly they've met with another advisor then who's asked them to bring all their documents to the first meeting. Yeah. They're even like, well, where's the fact finder? I said, I don't do a fact finder at the beginning. Why do I want to know all these things about you? I don't know if I, if I, you know, I don't, I don't even know, know if I like you yet. Well, and I do say that, which is, I'm like, oh, I do. I'm like, Laura, but I'm, I'm not even sure if I like you. I don't know if you like me. I mean, how are we going to then just come to this table and, and throw everything out there and say, here. In fact, when people do that, I step back a bit too. And I'm like, well, let's talk about this one more time, you know, because I don't want someone who's that impulsive either. It can be a nightmare. So then that's the very first meeting. The second meeting, which is actually my first financial planning meeting, is the documents. Okay. And I, so, so, so they've agreed my, to come on and now you're saying, okay, bring in, bring in all your stuff, bring in the, I guess they've already done the discovery form and, and we'll, uh. And then we'll, we'll do wait. the fact finder. They'll, you know, in my in my planning kit, I've got, you know, the risk tolerance profile, the planning fact finder, and I've got another fiscalosophy, which is a Mitch Anthony form from years ago that LPL got into a contract with him at one time and he let us have some of his docs. I still use that one too. Well, and, I, and I'm struck on your fact finder form again. Uh, you know, sp- speaking to your target market and who you and who you're serving, like your your fact finder labels and categories are rainbow colored. <laughs> Those are for LGBT. If you, yeah. So if you go to the one on the women's page, those are not. Those are different. I've changed them for everybody. And for folks who are curious about this, again, this is episode 148. So if you go to kitsis.com/slash 148, we'll have a links out for Laura's discovery form and, and fact finder. If you want to see a little bit more of this for, for context, the, the, the fact finder is truly like a, a, a beautiful testament to rainbows. So I, I feel like we can't do it. We can't do it justice on a podcast. You, you need to, 
you need to take a look. But uh, but again, like thinking of this in context of okay, if this is a form specifically for my LGBTQ clients, like what a what a a you know subtle yet not subtle way to connect like that that we are part of this shared community experience. Like you know, here's the rainbow literally in in the I mean in the fact finder. Like you know, the client name is red, and then the their birth date is orange, and then their social security number is yellow, and then their home address is green. Like literally, each line is a different color of the rainbow. And you know, if 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 you have connected with that rainbow symbol as part of the LGBT community, like that's a that's a powerful thing. That's a really powerful thing. Well, right. I'm speaking their language because their language is my language. And it's important to me because if you walk into the room and you are able to feel like you belong there, then you can let go of the shield and you can be vulnerable. And, And that is so important when you're planning for financial futures. I mean, it's just so important. So, of course, when... And I looked at, you know, who I am and and who do I serve? And I was like, well, then how do we make all of this look like this? This traditional stuff we've been using, it's nice. At least it looks, you know, friendly, but it has traditional pictures. And so what if we have on all our LGBT pictures that resonate with us? Um, and, and so some of those are friends of mine. <laughs> That's the other thing. And same thing with women. You know, I have strong women. I have strong women clients. Um, so how do we how do we show up for them as well? So one of the things that my assistant does or my operations manager, whoever took the call, has to help decide how do I how do I send this person down our road? You know, is this person, you know, just a a, a, a divorced woman? Or widowed, I'm going to send her the women's stuff. Is this person traditional marriage or is this person LGBT? And if they're LGBTQ, how do I identify that? So I've had to really work with her about, well, what are the questions you ask? How do you get us to understand who you are? You say, have you been to the website? Have you, you know, you know, Susan and her <laughs> uh-huh. wife, yeah, Laura and there. her wife, yep. Susan. And that reaction, if it comes back is, yeah, I've seen that, you know, my wife and I want to come in, you got it. But you've got to open up and and get that conversation going. You've got to be in there. So yeah, so the prospective client process is one whole process all in of itself. And what we do is identify, you know, who the person is, they're going to come in. And then at my meeting, I see what road are you going to take? Are you going to take that hourly consulting, you just have a few things? Are you going to do a financial plan and do full comprehensive financial plan? Or are you just wanting assets under management? And at some point you want to do a plan or you've already done a plan and you just want to do assets under management. So from my perspective, client meeting, I then have three ways that we go. And those three checklists are different, similar, but different because what happens in that second meeting for the client, but first meeting for me for planning is documents. I need to understand all the documents. It's the same thing for hourly consultant. I need to do all the documents, but I'm not going to have a lot of meetings after that. See what I'm saying? So each process after that, then we go into the next meeting and 
on my checklist, the planning meeting then has four more meetings. The meeting that we're doing for hourly consulting, of course, it depends on what we're doing. And a lot of times there's not a written written report. Um, and then the third one asks us under management, if that's all we're doing, then that next meeting is a documents meeting and making sure we have all the information that we understand what type of account we're going to open, how many accounts, those kinds of issues. A lot of clients are now doing a signature. So sometimes what will happen is I gather all that, that information, gather that understanding, and then my operations manager takes it over from there and gets the transfer forms, opens up the opens up the accounts, gets the transfer forms, those kinds of things. And then with that meeting, we have another meeting in a couple of weeks to talk about specifics on asset allocation model. So the asset allocation model is built. A lot of my clients now are using the ESG models or social sustainable models. So I really talk about, you know, what does that model look like? What's the difference between that and a traditional model? Making sure we've got the right models for risk and how we rebalance and how we dollar cost average, all those things that, that you have those meetings. And then once the assets are all transferred over and everything, we have another meeting with them. I like to get my clients in on a, you know, I want them in my office every couple of weeks for months, because I really want to get to know them and get to know me. And then we let them go so that they're in the world. And then they come in usually three times a year, or at least by phone once and two times a year. And and talk to us for a moment about this, the nature of a draft meeting. You know, I mean, I think there are a lot of firms that'll kind of do a you know, data gathering, discovery, plan presentation, implementation kind of series. But talk to us about have, like, having a draft meeting before you do a, like a full plan presentation meeting. Where, where does that, like, what do you do in that meeting? How do you make that distinct from just presenting the plan and, and, and moving to a conclusion? Well, that meeting is really to see where they are. You know, they've gone through this complex, you know, gathering all their documents, all this organizational stuff, clear about some things that they might have known were there but didn't really understand exactly what it was all about. So that draft meeting, to me, helps me understand what they got out of the process you know, what are the priorities and and where are we going to take our next relationship? Because that it, it gives us a chance to pause, to say, you know, okay, this is what I'm thinking. You know, I really think that, you know, you're in too much risk and I'll tell you why, you know, and I really think that you need to add more to your retirement, whether it feels good or not, you've got it in your budget. And to really get that buy-in from both of them as a couple, if there's two, because, you know, otherwise, if there's not a buy-in and we're just still continuing to go forward, what's in the plan doesn't really then get implemented because it was just this, this activity we did. So I'm really very, as a person, I like to have concrete discussions and then I like them to be confirmed. Is this what we're doing? Is this what we said? Is this, you know, am I on the right page here? And that I think gives them a chance too to say, you know, 
Do I really like the way she does things? I don't hurry people through decisions. I like it to be organic. I like it to be something that they've done together. And so every time after you know our meetings, I'm like, you go home and talk about this. What are the things that make you nervous? What are the things that you know you're fearful about telling me? You know, you'll find out things in the financial planning process that they've got debt they one of them didn't know about. <laughs> um, so it can get quite heated. So. How am I going to help you as a couple make these changes? So that draft meeting for me is like just a chance to pause and say, who are you? How are you doing? How did the process work for you? Because going forward, I'm saying we're going to do this. And part of that implementation is I want to work with you. And is that going to work? You know, are you ready for that? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it it, it does. I mean, it's an interesting flow because I think for for some of us, maybe for a lot of us, we just want to just want to get through the planning process. It's it's kind of long and time consuming enough as is for for some clients. But to me, one of the fundamental ways that that planning is shifting, and and frankly, interactive planning tools, I, I think, are helping to drive this. Is you know, sort of this this acknowledgement that like the plan it really is a living document. It's morphing. Even if you did a good thorough data gathering process, the plan you present often is not actually going to end up being the final plan, if only because once they see the actual trajectory they're on and what's possible, they're like, oh, well, all right, well, that was our plan, but like, I don't know like how that's coming out, so I want a different plan. Or, wow, this plan's actually coming out so well, I could do more I didn't even realize was possible, so now I want to change it to do something else. And that, you know, that, that plan... Even it isn't just a living document once we made it and say, hey, we're going to monitor and update this over time, but that formulating the plan is actually a more iterative process that historically we just couldn't do very efficiently because you print it and bring it out and then it's in the book and then it's hard to change the book and we don't want to do a lot of meetings, keep changing the book. But, but when you plan for it, assuming that whatever you present to the client first is something they're going to react to and then make one round of adjustments on the spot, I, I guess is sort of the essence of Bill Backrack's have a draft meeting before your plan presentation meeting and, and just gets even more facilitated with the current technology, e-money decision center and money guide pro play zone and those sorts of tools. Exactly. And you know, I don't want to be a commercial for e-money, but what I do in that draft meeting is pull up their plan on their website and show them how easy it is for them now to access their financial life on one dashboard. And that usually blows them away. They're like, oh my gosh, because they had seen that, you know, we do have this available. But to actually see their numbers on the screen, and there are some times where, you know, they say, well, we told you our mortgage was 164. Really, I checked on it and it's 206. So I said, no problem. Let's just change it right now. And they they see me changing and showing how fluid this is, that the importance about this process and financial planning is you and I developing a relationship of conversations and, and trusted information that I can come back and say, well, let's just change this. It's no big deal. Let's see what happens. I can also do the what ifs. Well, what if this happens? What if there is a disability? You have long-term care insurance you've had for 15 years. A lot of people haven't had that kind of policy. Let's see how it shows up. You know, so I, I can do those scenarios at that draft meeting to take away some of the 
questions and fears, but also to let them see that this is a dynamic process. This is not just you coming to me, me telling you what you have to do, and you trying to live up to it or not, you know, and as things change in your life, you know, then I can change it right here at our meetings and we can go forward. The other great thing about it is five years down the road, I tell them, we're going to look at this again and you're going to say, okay, I'm making X amount in retire. I'm making X amount in my income today, but I'm retiring two years early. Let's change it. And I can. So the facts are in here today. And let's, I, I like to look at the facts with them too, because I want to make sure, you know, the data entry is correct. And then I say, so let's change your income. You know, five years from now, let's say you're only working part-time. Let's just do it right now. So those kind of dynamic conversations really get it into more of a, a feeling. You know, th this is a person they're bringing into their lives to help them understand things, not to be combative and tell them what they should do or shouldn't do, or to live up to my expectations about reti what retirement means. It, it's a conversation that's going to be fluid that we're going to continue to have. And then the next thing I always talk to them about is, and your adult children, at some point, we're going to have the conversation with them too. They're going to know you got a website and they're going to be like, you got to be kidding. My parents don't do much on the internet. And I'll be like, yeah, well, let me show you. And they're like, oh, that would be really cool. And I say, yeah, we do family meetings. I like to do uh, family meetings. So I'll say, we'll set up family meetings with you in the next couple of years and say, here's your estate plan. I said, we'll show them numbers or not. It's up to you. But it would be really a good kind of kind of conversation for everyone because we've got all this, the data. We've got the policy information. We've got, we're going to, you know, expectance of when you're going to pass away. We can change that if you want. And so they just buy in again. And, and if at this point, we, I, I've really gotten to know them. I mean, they've gotten to know me too. I share some of my story as, as we go along. And so you know, it's really kind of a celebration of a process. And then it means more to all of us, I think. At the, at the draft meeting is when I ask for my final payment, too. So I take half down before I start, and I take the other half at that meeting. So at delivery, I'm not working or worried about getting paid. I get paid there at that draft meeting. And sometimes at the draft, they'll say, well, we really need to talk more about estate. You know, are we done? You know, can we have another another meeting about that? Or business planning, because business planning, you know, it can go on and, and you can do some things with that quite a bit. So I'll say, yeah, let's let's add another hour or two to our our schedule and let's talk about that again next time. And then we'll get to that final. So as you look back over nearly 25 years now of of being in the business what what surprised you the most about trying to build your own advisory firm or firms <laughs> since you've iterated on this more than once well initially you know i was just going to be a financial advisor and then as time would tell it and i you know decided to divorce my husband i thought Whew, i got to figure out this retirement thing and maybe there's more to advising about investments than just advising about investments. And I really had to look at my whole self. That's when I really got interested in financial planning and, and just fell in love with the profession and what it could be. So initially, I just thought that I would help, you know, professional women navigate transitions, either divorce or, or widowhood. 
And then as I got further along into it, I think just because I was raising my family and, and my kids and became a CFP, I thought, you know, I really want to mentor other people and develop this this financial planning industry. And, and, and it seemed like there was an investment side and a financial planning side. And I wanted to help merge that to kind of be fee-based. And, and I still have that core belief. So I got involved with the FPA and I got involved with the CFP board and, and really tried to help uh, nurture that. And, and, but the firm idea for me didn't work because I took on too much responsibility which I think happens to women sometimes. I think we think we can do everything and and sometimes we get burned out by it. So the industry itself, I think initially was this solo. All, you know, every, everyone was solo and just trying to figure out how to do it on your own. And then, you know, as firms came in and, and people started saying, well, you could actually sell your practice. You know, I remember thinking that the first time, gosh, 10 years ago, buy it? What would they buy? These are people. You can't buy people. But I helped a I helped a, a person who was a brokerage commission-based investment advisor move into advisory. And through that process of helping him, I actually helped two of them, but his was more developed than the second one who was in, new in the industry. I helped understand that you know, this business model of advisory is so important. And I didn't understand why more people weren't doing it other than it, it, you didn't get paid up front as much as you did with commission. But then you had sustaining, you know, income. So I've just seen a lot of changes in the last 25 years um, in our industry working more and more towards now the advisory platforms and now the advisory platforms are, are more affordable to even even use. And so I like to, I like where we're going. I, I like seeing what's happening. We're opening up to diversity and inclusion. It just, I'm so excited to be a part of what's happening and not only in our industry, in our country, but I think some of that happened because of the Supreme court when they ruled that we could get married, you know, in uh, 2015, June of 2015, it kind of opened the door for us to say, you know what, we now have legal rights because prior to that, our legal rights were not equal. So now that that has changed, I think you see our industry changing and and we also are seeing, you know, people of color coming to the forefront and leadership and things and 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 having a voice at the table. Um, so I love, I love what's happening. I love the disruption because I think from the disruption and the chaos comes change. And then that change though moves into more harmony. It, it moves into, okay, this is what we do now. And, and I really see that, that this is what we'll do now in, in the future. So what was the low point for you along the way? Oh, the low point. Gosh, I've had several. One of them was thinking I was going to have this firm in 2000, I started that firm idea. And I just really thought I was going to be able to do it. And it took so much money out of my personal savings and and income. And I just felt like such a failure. I thought I could do it by motivating people, um, by coaching, by putting them through training by having checklists, by having an admin. I mean, my God, if you had all these things, you could be so successful. 
and they were good people. I mean, you know, good, good people, but I just, I just felt like such a failure. And then when the recession hit, it, it magnified it because I didn't have, I had no new clients in 2010, I think it was, not one. And it just, you know, I had people say to me, well, you should sell insurance then. You need to do this. So you need to do that. And I said, no, I'm a financial planner. I am not going to all of a sudden do something else to make money. By God, I'll starve. I'll eat rice and beans before I'm going to give up my ethics. And so it was a tough time because, you know, my my wife is also self-employed. And so massage therapy, you know, is a luxury for a lot of people. And so they, you know, the people who came every week started coming every other. The people who came every other came once a month. My clients did not leave me. That was the good thing. We talked so much. I did so much proactive. We had conversations all the time. But they took money out to pay off debt for their adult children. A lot of them. It wasn't them who weren't the savers. It was the next generation. They stopped putting money in their retirement. You know, my small business owners couldn't put more money in their retirement. So that pulled back. So it hit me like a, a storm. And at first, you know, I thought it was my fault. What had I done wrong? And then, you know, through... I, I was actually the FPA president in 2013, but prior to that, I was a national president of a organization called WIFS, Women in Financial Services. And so I just stuck with my peers, and we did a lot with financial literacy programs, and we did a lot, you know, telling each other, this is not our fault. We did the best we could with the information we had. And what we'll do is we will work, you know, hard going forward to make sure, you know, our clients have the best, you know, recollection out of this that we can. And with that resilience, then for myself, and I know some of my peers who are closest to me, we said, we will build defensive practices where this will never happen again to us personally, so that I won't be spending all of my discretionary. I won't be, you know, bringing in clients that don't fit 100%. I'll just insulate myself. So in case there's another recession, which I have no control over, I won't feel like such a failure. Those were really tough times for me then. You know, I think Sometimes I, I worry about what I say to people is sometimes is not sugarcoated and, and it's taken wrong. So sometimes when I think about what I've done in the past that was negative or failure and some of my leadership roles, I've been too strong in my honest <laughs> discussions. And so, you know, I try to look at that now and say, how can I, you know, have a message that people can hear without being so confrontive. You know, those are things that I, I know are my failings. But, you know, I think in, at the end, we're all, you know, imperfect humans. And, you know, I follow Brene Brown like a, you know, cult. I, I just love a lot of the things she says. And I'm really trying to stick with her principles on dare to lead and try to make sure that, you know, my values that that I try to have are are also looking at, you know, unconscious bias and thinking, okay, Laura, that that way you said that was really not kind if you think about, you know, how you said it um in the in the bigger scheme. So I think we're always learning from our failures, or at least I am trying. So then as, as you look back, any anything you wish you'd done differently in, in 
building your firm in this journey? Like I'm, I'm particularly struck that early on you had mentioned a couple of times just the the way that you handle a lot of issues differently now as just as you've aged and have more world experience than the way that you dealt with them in the past. So like, what do you, what do you know of experience now that you wish could go back tell and tell you from 20 plus years ago? You know, I'm not really one of those people um, that have a lot of regrets. I think I show up in my truth of who I am today and my younger self was a little more brash and wasn't as polished and maybe didn't hold her tongue like I do sometimes today. But I don't know that I would do anything different. You know, I, I've i always been that kind of person that took the road less traveled. And so I know I, when I was talking to my dad about some discrimination I was feeling when my son was in high school, he said, you know, Laura, what do you expect? You're telling people you're a lesbian in this community. What do you expect? And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, I expect respect. I guess I expect that because I'm a parent that I should have some respect because I've got a really good, strong student here. And he said, no, he said, you're doing things that are not you know, approved of by all people in the culture. So you've got to expect some of that pushback. And I said, I think that's crap. I still think it's crap. You know, I don't, I don't really regret anything. My younger self was scrappier and she definitely got into more fistfights than I do today, but she brought me here. She's the warrior that came out of the woods from my childhood. And without her, I, I, I can't stand strong. But I have to temper her because she will bite. And, and <laughs> oftentimes it's better just to bark some than to actually bite. And so I'm learning that. But I, I don't regret it. I don't regret what I've done or where I've came from. I, I actually harnessed it in. So is there any advice you'd give to younger advisors looking to to come in today and and maybe you know LGBTQ young advisors in particular Yeah I you know I always say your voice matters and and I think it's important to be authentic I'm a really consistent person I'm the same person at home as I am in public and with my children and so I I really think it's important to be who you are fully and there's going to be parts of yourself you don't like or parts of yourself you're afraid of. Bring them out and, and polish them up if you need to. But, but it's all worth the risk. Because if you are comfortable with you and who you are, then you'll find the people that accept you for who you are and will want to work with you. And, and there's going to be people that don't want to work with you. And really, in the long run, you don't want to either. So I think you really need to just be who you are fully. Find that nutritious circle of friends and family that build that tapestry. That's, you know, I think, you know, diversity makes us strong. I've always thought that that. And find those people that, you know, can help you develop and, and, and model, you know, model what you want to be and who you want to be. But remember, <laughs> you're your unique self. That's who you are. 
And you can't, you don't want to change who you are. You want to be brave enough to stay who you are. Brene Brown has that um, saying, you know, stay brave, a little awkward and always kind. And I have that on my desk. And being always kind is not one of the things that I find easy because I am a fighter, but I'm always trying. I'm trying. And so I think that's what's important. Be who you are fully and and try to be open to, you know, how you develop yourself so you can make a difference. I think people in this business want to make a difference. That's why we're here. Some of them do want to just make money, but I think that's a smaller portion. I, th- I really think, you know, we're all social workers that are trying to find the resources needed to help people be who they are, you know, live their fullest lives. And And for advisors who want to help find some of that community and role models, you know, we talked at the beginning about the rainbow network that you're building for advisors, I think initially within LPL, but looking to go broader. So if, if listeners are interested in, in being involved or connecting or to that, like, what should they do? I don't know if you have a, a website up yet, or should they just reach out to you directly to get more information as it becomes available? Yeah, I don't have a website out yet. And Marcy Bear and I are starting to sit down and talk about those things and get some outlines going. I have a lot of connections on LinkedIn, and I am active. So when people connect with me on LinkedIn, I've We've started a list, trying to get things together there. LPL has started a LinkedIn group for our LGBT community. And then, you know, on Twitter, of course, there's followers. But really, LinkedIn for professionals from for myself would probably be the best way. Again, this is episode 148. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 148, we'll have links out for, for Laura's LinkedIn page as a way to, to contact her if you want to get in touch. As we wrap up, Laura, this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that's always come up is even just the word success means different things to different people, uh, sometimes different things to us as, as we go through the stages of our lives. And so you you've you built this successful practice for yourself. You're gearing up now to to sell it in the in the in succession out in the coming 10 years. But I'm wondering how, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, I wake up every morning and say, who do I need to speak to today? Who, who do I need to be in conversation with? And for me, success is, is knowing I showed up fully. It's not necessarily the money. The, the money never scared me or, or prompted me, I guess, because I wasn't raised having money. So it just, it just wasn't. But I have a really good relationship, strong relationship, honest with my children and developing with my grandchildren, with my spouse. I have a strong network of friends and some family that are there for me no matter what. And I just feel, you know, successful that way as a person that from where I came, I I had a, a tough childhood. So from where I came, and how I managed to find good, loving people to have full relationships, you know. I'm still just in awe of that. Well, amen. Well, I, I love the journey that you've been on and, and the, the way you're bringing family in for the next stage of the business. It's an incredible journey. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really excited about it. It was not what I had anticipated. So, but I think it speaks about the success of a person when those closest to you want to be around you a lot. <laughs> Amen. I, I think you've earned it. Well, thank you, Laura, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. I just really appreciate everything you're doing in the industry, and you just keep trying to find ways to connect us as well as question things that are happening um, that need to maybe have some light and also to you know not just take one person's answer for anything. I, I really like the way that you show up in our industry too, Michael, and I, I appreciate you inviting me here on the podcast. This is been an incredible conversation for me. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.